Good afternoon, folks. Welcome back to the RF Factor, episode number 16. Today, we're going to have the awesome opportunity to have a conversation with Dr. Rachel Bolton King. Um, lately, we've been sort of turning it right over to our guests. We sort of want to how she got here or how they got here. But uh, I know, Pete, that Rachel is near and dear to all the work you've been doing. You've been telling me about her for quite some time based on uh, interactions you've had with her as it relates to uh, whether it's her articles or your own. So I figured maybe I'd just throw this over to you first um, because I think you can speak to why it's so important we have Rachel on our show today. You're, you're right, Ray. You know, I, I, I do... I've done a lot of writing in the area of crime gun intelligence, but uh, every piece I've done, um, I always wind up tripping over pieces that, that Rachel has done. And um, as a matter of fact, what Rachel does is she brings a, a, an academic perspective. She's sort of sitting up there uh, outside of the, of the law enforcement uh, community, but with a, with a dotted line connected to it. And she's able to see things that, and, and, and make observations that sometimes we don't see for ourselves. So um, I think it's important that we bring that perspective into our discussions today on crime gun intelligence. Um, she's, she's well-traveled. She's uh, done work in the United States. She's uh, toured various labs. She's talked to police officers. She's talked to forensic experts. She's done extensive work in Europe, in, in the United Kingdom, um, and, and other places as well. So um, we really look forward to hearing her perspective on the, the, uh, the issues around crime gun intelligence in terms of the, the people issues, the process issues, the technology issues, the importance of policy driving these, these issues, and most importantly, relentless follow-up to make sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing and what they agreed to do. So without further ado, Ray, I'll turn it back to you and, and we'll get Rachel on board. So Rachel, uh, welcome aboard. I, I know you, uh, you work for Staffordshire University. I, I said that correct. Yeah. Um, but look, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. So um, my journey started off really as an undergraduate in forensic science in the UK. Um, I always had a passion, like ever since before CSI was a program on television, um, it was to investigate crime, to use science and um, experiences to, to try and uh, problem solve, to try and detect that crime had occurred, investigate it and hopefully prosecute it. And so that's where my passion for forensic science really began. I thought I always wanted to be a practitioner. And, you know, one of my key drivers really is to actually work with practitioners. You know, I, I fully appreciate that being a practitioner means that your, your time isn't always your own and you have certain priorities that you have to, uh, you know, focus on. And being an academic now, I really, um, value and really want to connect academia and industry better together and that's kind of been my my passion and my ethos really since I did my PhD which was focused on three-dimensional imaging technologies and specifically in the field of forensic firearm identification and since then I started working at Staffordshire University in 2011. Um, I've become a national teaching fellow, I've had the absolute privilege of being awarded a Churchill Fellowship that has enabled me to travel, as Pete mentioned, um, to really learn from you know, those on the front line, understand their challenges, their barriers, but also get inspired by how they want to make change and how they hope that change will occur in the future. And so all of the work and the research that I've done since my PhD has ultimately tried to bring my students as an academic to support them in networking with practitioners and giving practitioners extra resources to be able to investigate something that, you know, they might have a gut feeling about or, 
you know, they might want to evaluate or um, there's a, a case scenario that they might um, not have the resources and the time to, to do the research on their cell. Um, and so over the last 10, uh, 11 years or so since completing my PhD, I've really sort of focused on supporting, well, I would hope supporting practitioners um, and sharing knowledge and awareness with a whole range of different um, age groups, uh, both the public, um, other researchers, practitioners in, in other countries. Um, and so I've tried to publish where when, I, when I've had the opportunity to. I always have a lot of research that I've yet to publish on, which um, I'm trying to make the time for so that hopefully that gets out into the, the community. Um, and really try to, um, I guess, bring all of the aspects of the criminal justice system together. That's really where I think my, my passion and my, my drive for, for change and the future of um, not only forensic science, but law enforcement and the criminal justice system more broadly. And so all of the, the work that I'm, I'm focusing on doing is, is about that. And it's fundamentally underpinned by technology and how, but not just technology, how all of those parts that Pete mentioned, people, processes, technologies, et cetera, how they can best work together and be most holistic and so that's where I see sort of my career and my future and my passions for all of us moving forward. Um, and so the, the Churchill Fellowship and sort of the work that I've been doing, it, it ultimately, you know, needs academia and industry, I think, to, to come together much more often to be better understood by each other. Um, and to help bring all of those parts of the criminal justice system together in that process as well. Um, and so sort of that's my my background, you know, how I got into this particular profession. And I, I started off actually in analytical chemistry as, as that's where I thought, you know, drugs analysis might be where my friends science discipline would go. But as soon as I had the experience of working with people such as Pete and the firearm community, you know, I totally changed, you know, the the direction of of the discipline in which I wanted to study, and and I would never choose to to change that moving forward. I I love your energy and your your excitement over this. So let's set the stage here. You know, there, there's an an old euphemism that says every crime gun has a story to tell. Maybe you you could set the stage for our listeners in terms of what, what forensic story every crime gun may hold. Yeah. So crime gun intelligence and, and how the gun can tell a story and how we can follow that gun in order to lead us to lots of different individuals, lots of different locations um, and how we can also link some of those people and those locations together. But I also think whilst we use this term crime gun intelligence, I think it's really important that we don't forget the really important contribution that ammunition has to the ability for a gun to even become a lethal weapon. And, you know, a lot of the, the focus is on, on the firearms. And from my sort of interactions with, with law enforcement and officers, a lot of their attention and focus is often on the gun. But without the ammunition, the firearm can't be discharged and, and it can't be used in that lethal way. And Gun, so guns don't, guns don't kill people, bullets kill people. Absolutely. You're, you're spot on there, Pete. And, and so, you know, for me, crime gun intelligence isn't just about the firearm. It's about the ammunition. It's about the journey as to where that firearm and that ammunition was, was created, where it was manufactured. Because it's often gets into, you know, it, the, the story starts with it being a, a legitimately owned firearm. But then at some point, that firearm gets into criminal hands or it gets used for illegal activities. And that there, at every stage, there can be information. 
and intelligence that can be gleaned, generated and exploited for us to be able to understand the the story of the, the gun, the story of the ammunition, and to be able to help us to detect that crime uh, is happening with firearms. Because we often also think about shooting and investigating a, a shooting or a bloodshed incident. But absolutely every time a firearm is used and ammunition is used, whether it's a, a sh an actual discharge of a shot or not, whether it's actually using that firearm to elicit fear, to use it as a threat, all of those associated information can actually be used as intelligence. So crime gun intelligence to me is, is about all the bits of information, all of the journey uh, in which that firearm and that ammunition may be being used um, or have the potential for being used. And in the context of, of forensic science, that's really important, you know, often termed forensic ballistics um, or you know, more specifically forensic firearm identification, to be able to actually associate a fired bullet or a fired cartridge case back to the original um, source, the, the firearm that actually discharged it in the first place. And to then also consider the possibility that that firearm may have been used in other crimes, to be able to, to link or associate those uh, that firearm to be used in those different geographic locations, often by similar people, the same people or a group of individuals, but also sometimes by completely different individuals through the movement and, and the trafficking and, of that particular firearm and, and the associated ammunition. Well, you know, it's interesting that you, you speak about the journey of the firearm and how many firearms that are used in crimes today actually start out as a legitimate legitimate firearms made by a a licensed uh manufacturer so um speak for a second about the importance of records um accurate records of transfer from the date of manufacture to the uh maybe a wholesale level or import level to the retail level to the ownership level and you could speak to it because the laws vary so greatly uh, from one one city to another, sometimes one state to another, one country to another. Um, maybe if you could just speak to that, because yeah. then I'm going to follow up with this second question about a big problem that we're seeing today in the area of what they call ghost guns. And we'll talk about that mm -hmm. in a minute. But let's talk about the, the journey and the importance of records and record keeping. Yeah, definitely. I mean, often we find that there isn't many um, points of the journey of the firearm in which records are actually kept. So, you know, if they are legitimately manufactured, they there are records often kept as to who the, the purchaser, the organization, the company, um, or maybe the military, for example, who actually purchased the, the, uh, the firearms from the original manufacturer. And then there might be points at which those those firearms may have been exported at a border, imported at the next border. Um, it, there could have been points where they pass from um, being a, in the UK we call it a registered firearm dealer, where you know it's somebody selling those particular firearms. Then there are records kept as to who may have purchased those firearms, and similarly for ammunition as well. Um, but in, you know, I know in the US, for example pawnbrokers are also a great source of information and um, some of them are, are excellent at documenting um, and keeping records around um, the, the transfer of that firearm and, and the sale of that firearm. Um, often there, there isn't many points between when the firearm was originally purchased and when the actual firearm might have been used, but we could also consider the fact that there are documents and records kept if people um, have their firearms stolen or if firearms are lost for any reason then uh, law enforcement may have records uh, indicating the last point that it, we were known to have that firearm held legally and then it this 
being able to document various points in the journey and the life cycle of the firearm is really helpful and, and vital really for law enforcement and forensic science because it enables you to narrow down the time frame of which you know the firearm might have actually been in use in for illegal activities and the time what we call time to crime so the last point uh, of of legal holding holding um and then you know it also identifies people that we can talk to as part of the investigation um, to see what they last knew uh, when they last had the firearm, the circumstances in which that firearm um, may have gone missing or the point at which they sold it or passed it on to another individual. Um, and all of those points can really help us in, in the investigative process. And, and you, you know, and, and, and I'll, I'll just follow up with this, this one observation that um, the extent of record keeping, as you well know, it becomes a question of um, of of rights of of uh, rights uh, that various countries uh, uh, provide uh, the citizenry uh, in terms of firearm ownership. So we're we're not making any judgments on on that. What we're doing is respecting the laws of every jurisdiction that. Um, their uh, citizens uh, ascribe to. And having said that, in the United States uh, in particular, um, there is a right to bear arms. And um, there are laws that prevent quote-unquote firearms registration. But at the mm -hmm. same time, those same laws recognize the importance of being able to trace the history of a gun that's used in crime. And there are ways to balance record keeping with the uh, with human rights and the right to bear arms. Um, uh, some countries um, don't don't have those considerations. And, and that's there's no judgment there either. Um, I guess the bottom line the thing I'm trying to say is that you can do both. You could uh, be respectful of of the right to bear arms and you can keep records in a in a manner that uh respects um that uh, that freedom definitely and you know in some respects you know you could consider it similar to the same discussions around um dna databases or any other databases that might be utilized uh for sort of criminal um and you know investigative purposes you know we're not at a stage where everybody in the world's DNA is on a database to use for either, you know, prosecution or elimination purposes. And it's exactly the same from a firearms perspective. You know, even though in, in my view, it, a firearm is an object. Um, and most often those that, that bear arms are using them safely. Uh, they use them you know, in accordance with the law, they leave, they use them and possess them legally. Um, and it, it is unfortunate that the legislation does prohibit typically the, the, the legal users of firearms, because as with most things, it's the small minority of people committing illegal activities that then end up um, causing uh, challenges and and stopping others from using firearms uh, in a in a very safe and responsible manner um you know dna you know is very personal um to each of us as individuals and if we don't understand how the the information about our dna is, is put into a database we can understand how that might impinge our human rights but in terms of a firearm it's an object it doesn't have that same sort of requirement that's that same personal um, identifier. Um, and so in some respects, I, I don't fully understand the rationale behind, you know, not being able to register firearms um, from a, a forensic perspective to obtain a, a test fire of a firearm, for example, and store that in a database not containing any personal information about the purchaser or the owner or the user, 
but about the firearm itself um you know registering you know the forensic value of that firearm to use for investigative purposes registering the the information around the owner of the firearm i understandably a different matter um but there are two parts of this which i think and understandably those that aren't um don't work in this field or don't don't know of all the the aspects of of this particular part of um of investigations or 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 legislation or um or forensic science may not be able to to differentiate between but i do think that there's there is scope and there is the ability to do both if you know everyone is is has the understanding and the awareness about actually what purpose it it has and what value it could have for them as individuals as well as the wider society you know i i i i know exactly the the um the issue that you're talking about in terms of sort of taking a a, a fingerprint of somebody at the time they're born to see later on if they used uh, committed a crime you know and i've been involved in 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 the technology that uh, would be used to do this, uh, what we call ballistic fingerprinting. But having said that, I, I see that in some places it, it, it can work and, and work very well. And some uh, countries have put that in place, but there's really a balancing act because in some countries, depending on the, the scope of firearms usage and, and new firearms that are coming into the, the community pool, it might it really comes down to what is cost effective what 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 makes sense um there are some places that if somebody asked me i'd say no all of the effort to do that may not be worth what you would get out of it but at the same time are there surgical things we can do for like stolen weapons for example mm-hmm. yeah. uh, if a weapon becomes stolen and there was a, a, an exemplar, could that then be entered into a system to track the stolen you? So yeah. unfortunately, whenever this gets discussed in a political vacuum, it's always the big issue, the most complicated one, when in reality, there may be surgical things you can do that make sense instead mm-hmm. of global global mm-hmm. things that you can do to make sense. So um, I, I, I get it. I, I get it. Um, and I, I find myself on, on both sides of that issue, depending on who we're speaking to. So, yeah, and I mean, there's a whole whole range of, of, of complexities and, and issues. Like you know, Aust- Australia, for example. Australia did a study and some years back, and they found that the source of their crime guns was actually private security firms that were mm-hmm. authorized to have firearms and the guns were either being stolen or robbed directly from the security officers or they were being unlawfully diverted under the table to the criminal element. So they did put a law in place that licensed uh, armed security companies and required a, 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 an exemplar of every gun uh, that they, they had in their inventory. And they were solving bank robberies and, and knowing what gun did it before before the, the private security realized that they were missing the gun that, that was involved. So it, it worked for them. You know, um, it has to be proportional, doesn't it? It has to be proportional. I, I think that's what you're saying. I'm, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Ray where we need to go because... Um, well, I, I, I'm actually uh, I'm excited just uh, sitting back and listening, but we're... You know, Rachel, one area that I would sort of like to spend a little bit more time on and uh, has to do with people, mm-hmm. uh, the, the human factor. And in doing some uh, research about you uh, prior to us uh, setting up today for this recording, I, I came across an interview and you were talking about your research. And, and in one, air, one uh, component was the importance for juries to understand the the value uh, of forensic evidence. Now, 
I have found in, in my own career that it's just not the jury that sometimes is challenged by forensic uh, evidence and, of course, forensic technologies, but it's also uh, law enforcement in general, meaning uh, police, uh, investigators, all the way up to the command level. And just by you shaking your head, I think uh, you probably identify with that. So taking us down that road here, while it's critically important that juries understand this, and well, let me back up, let me give it a little context. Uh, you know, This is uh, something that uh, we've all become familiar with over the last probably 10 years is the CSI effect. What people see on TV is what they really think forensics are. Uh, some of that is is uh, becoming accurate, but not all of it. So, what what can we do? Uh, starting with law enforcement, starting with the police, investigators, all the way up to uh, command staff, executives. So, so they recognize there is a tremendous value in uh, spending time and attention in forensics and forensic technologies, and and then of course, how do we? follow up on that. And what I mean by that is there, and this is where this relentless follow-up piece, it, it comes up. And hence the the name of our show is that you always have to be looking in your review mirror because just because you got it right today, doesn't mean three or four years from now when there's, when there's turnover and just human slippage in general uh, forces us to go back and um, ensure that that folks understand these concepts and are able to leverage these concepts. Because to your point earlier, with with you and Pete describing this, that um, this is it's critically important not only for the justice system, but it's also effective and efficient if you're relying on forensic. So I love you to weigh in on that. Absolutely, and actually, it it also ties in with some of the work that I've been doing in the UK recently because you know absolutely the juries and the csi effect um and and latest research has has even demonstrated that depending on who you ask which which areas of the world which which specific members of you know the public and and what their background knowledge and awareness are you know their their interpretation of and their assessment of the value of forensic science in decision making it differs um, and this is totally true as well in law enforcement. And some of the the work that I've been doing has has definitely identified some of the challenges around um, understanding forensic evidence, understanding what it's capable of providing, what its limitations are. Um, and this isn't just in the the context of you know firearms and and gun crime. This is in the much broader sense of forensic science. Um, you know, people are much more aware and uh, of the potential value of fingerprints and, and finger mark evidence um, and DNA evidence. Um, not necessarily completely accurately, but they're they're much more aware. Um, you know, if you compare the U US and the U UK, for example, with the civilian background knowledge and awareness of firearms. In the UK, our, our awareness of it is much more limited. Um, you know, but that doesn't mean to say that in the US everybody understands it either. Um, and so, it just doesn't at a baseline level as a civilian. You know, before you even think about becoming a law enforcement officer or you know a forensic practitioner or a judge or you know anybody within the judicial system. You know the the background knowledge and awareness of of the individual is, is paramount. And I mean, within law enforcement, they have a whole field of knowledge that that has to occupy their brain and their space. Um, you know, regarding legislation and policies and procedures, and uh, you know, for a whole range of different types of crime. Um, you know, not just gun crime. Um, and so. It's completely understandable that to ask them to then understand the scientific underpinning of of how forensic evidence can add value to them, and um, you know whether it's a technology related thing or even a report that says this is a forensic outcome or this is a link between this crime and this crime. Actually, it's our job as forensic experts to 
actually communicate what we know and what the value of it is because you know we don't understand all the aspects of law enforcement and an investigation so how can we possibly expect them to understand everything as well but there needs to be better and, and more mutual understanding of, of the two because from a law enforcement perspective you know whatever level of seniority you are or whether you're you know on the ground um, as a as an officer who's just joined a police force, you know, just gone through training. One of the key fundamental aspects that we've identified from work in the UK is that there is no, um, or there's incredibly limited training, and whether it's awareness training or um, any form of training around forensic evidence and what it can do, what its limitations and its capabilities are. And that's at, you know, ground, you know, at entry level. But then there's nothing above that either. There's, or if there is, it's ad hoc, it's delivered in-house, it's not necessarily delivered by experts in the field. Um, you know, it might be just experience-based knowledge that's passed on from one person to the next. And as you said, when turnover happens, you know, that, that knowledge, that awareness has, has gone. Um, you might have law enforcement uh, agencies that have dedicated task teams that you know very much focus and specialize on investigating particular type or types of crimes that are often associated with each other and this is often where the best um, outcomes might occur however everyone involved you know, preceding those people coming to the scene or being part of that investigation or if the crime itself isn't severe enough to warrant that level of input there's a whole wealth of, of lack of knowledge, lack of awareness. And, you know, we have to develop more um, CPD based frameworks that embed forensic evidence and, you know, what forensic evidence can do to an investigation. We've got to embed that in there all the way through and not just at one level or another. You know, it's a constant developmental process, which means that over the course of your career, your knowledge and your awareness and your understanding advances and it changes as you know the situation around you changes as the research develops as the technology develops um and therefore the follow-up has to you know be continual you know so that it that that knowledge and awareness that understanding is is constantly being developed you know relatively frequently you know every year couple of years not every five years or ne never, um, but also, you know, from the flip side, forensic scientists, you know, we don't necessarily do our job well either. We don't enable our reports to get back to officers in a timely manner. And so how can they possibly think that forensic evidence is of value and useful to them if they're getting it? A week later, two weeks later, a month, two months, a year later, that's no use to them whatsoever. So you can understand why they don't necessarily have strong confidence or value in the forensic evidence either. Can I, can I just be, I, I know Pete had his hand up, but just, uh, just to that point, um, there's a mindset that there should be a, uh, a, a separation between law enforcement and forensics. And from an evidentiary perspective, I certainly agree with that. But I'm wondering if, if folks have taken that to uh, agree where that separation means that those two communities don't talk. And because they don't talk, they don't pass on information and they're not able to learn from each other. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that's a really interesting one, because on the one hand, I agree that you know, to some extent, there needs to be separation between law enforcement and forensic science, but not, not even, you know, from an agency perspective. I, I actually think, you know, some of the best um, approaches uh, and best timeliness, effectiveness and efficiency come by geographically locating the actual forensic laboratory with the, the law enforcement agency that directly will utilize or or most often utilize their their outcomes their reports um but from a i think the challenge is that human factor it's that 
that perception that the closer that law enforcement and forensic science become, the more potential there is to introduce bias into the analysis, into the decision making, into the the overall investigation. And so from my perspective, and this is my opinion, and, and there will be people who, vis- who disagree with me, and there's also research that disagrees with me, but there's also a research that agrees with me, that actually it's about the human involvement. And it's about the policies and the procedures that are in place to eliminate the information that is not necessary for the forensic analysis and interpretation to be done. But there has to be really strong, close relationships and working, you know, um, communication methods between forensic scientists and law enforcement, because without them, nothing happens. You know, without them, the forensic scientists don't know what they're analyzing. They don't know what 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 to do. They need to be informed. But then if there's no sort of feedback to them if there's no link back into law enforcement or that that mechanism is broken or it's not well developed again whatever they do in the lab however amazingly it's done it's not going to be utilized so there was kind of no point in it being you know undertaken in the first place and so we yeah sorry it's it what you're describing i believe is you know the old the old adage that, that there's a time for every purpose, a time for every season, and there's a time when forensic experts and law enforcement people need to be talking together and working together, and there's a time for them to be separated and 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 leave a, a, a clear cut a, a line of demarcation between them, and and common sense needs to balance that because. To your original point about um, knowledge and 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 educating each other uh, from the law enforcement side and the forensic side about what the needs are on the law enforcement side, what the value that they can provide on the forensic side, that those discussions need to take place not once, not basic in a in a, in, in your initial training, but an ongoing. Uh, an ongoing reinforcing type of thing where we keep up with the uh, with the changes in in technology and forensics. And, and what I've seen in in my workshops, I, I would um, in in the United States there's NIBIN, the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. In the UK there's NABIS, the National Ballistic Intelligence uh, 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 section and service. And, and and in my workshops, I give an introduction into Nibin, and at the break, at one of the lunch breaks, I ask everyone, you know, tell the truth. How many of you have knew what Nibin was before you walked into this this workshop? And if there were a hundred people in the workshop, I might see ten hands go up. Mm-hmm. And I and and so. Um, your your point exactly about um, this this education at the beginning that there's a time for that purpose. It's a right right rightful purpose. Um, and then your point about this this line of separation so we don't have implicit bias. That's a rightful purpose. And so we've got it's like anything else in life when you're dealing with human beings. We've got to balance and do what makes sense. Um, to to get to our goal, because while we may be on separate tracks, a forensic track and an investigative track, we're both going towards the same objective, to to identify the criminal and and, and bring them to justice. Exactly, and you know, and it's the same around um, you know the judicial part of the system. You know, it doesn't matter which part of you know whether you're. Um, looking at rehabilitation and the prison service, whether you're looking at forensic science, whether you're looking at law enforcement and, and legislation, and every single part of that chain is fundamental to being able to investigate crime, prosecute crime, ensure that you know individuals aren't wrongfully prosecuted, 
and also to try to reduce crime um you know in the future for society reduce harm and violence for society but every single part of that chain has to work as effectively and efficiently as the other there are understandably challenges at each of those points but if one part of the chain is is doing an amazing job but it's being let down by some other part of the chain then that that one part that's continuing to improve and advance and and be more effective more efficient innovative you know really push the boundaries of what's possible it it it's not going to have the impact that it should and those people are going to be working so hard but they're not going to have the the change that actually they you know that deserves to happen not only for them but also for society and so it's really important i think that the whole criminal justice system actually has to take a look at itself um from a really wide holistic viewpoint but we often because of the time parameters and and our job and our resourcing etc we focus on our individual role at our point of that journey of that of that cycle of that chain but actually i think if we came together much more often all parts of the criminal justice system in order to to change our policies our procedures our practices and understand the barriers the challenges that each part of it faces we wouldn't then be you know blaming one part of the chain or the other for you know, miscarriages of justice or um you know <laughs> low crime solving rates um really difficult violent um social and community environment but we have to you have to have people in all of those places at quite senior levels willing to come together willing to find consensus willing to change and to challenge and to make effective and timely and um <sighs> vital changes that are needed they have to be able to consider everybody's viewpoint and be able to to create you know a holistic solution to the criminal justice system because you know this is i think why even in one country we've got some some laboratories some law enforcement agencies you know some regions that are being brilliant but for whatever reason that is not being consistently adopted and shared and and in, enacted across the whole nation and and I can say that even in the UK which is a really small geographic space you know on the same hand we have the same problem in the US and where it's you know understandably more challenging because there are more agencies there's there's more um borders you know and, and barriers than there are in the UK and if we can't even do it easily in the UK how on earth could you possibly do it in a country as big as South Africa or the US so that that's a great segue into from your global perspective um as it relates to processes and practices not everyone can get them all in as you've described they might not be resourced appropriately maybe their capabilities aren't there but as it relates to um crime gun intelligence uh forensics related to uh crime guns what do you feel is maybe your top 3 that an entity regardless of where they sit globally needs to ensure that they master i think really good relationships between all of the actors within the criminal justice system um you know understanding you know that there needs to be those separations at, at various points but to be able to to connect and to share and to liaise and to communicate the knowledge and you know the outcomes back to each other i think is one of the most fundamental things i think 
ultimately it doesn't matter what what processes what technology you have or don't have if you don't value the people if you don't reward them for their success if you don't if you don't have consequences if they don't do what they're supposed to do if you don't create a fair and empowering um working environment i've seen you know even within the same country two different laboratories you know they're supposed to undertake the same policies the same practices yet the working environment of the people and and how they feel that they're treated or the the environment in which they feel they're working in one place versus another means that actually those in in the place that they don't feel valued where they don't feel that what they're doing is is worthwhile the, the time and the effort they're putting in if they don't understand what contribution they're making to criminal justice outcomes then they they they're demotivated they don't want to to come to work they don't want to put in that extra mile because they're not feeling like it, it's needed or, or they don't know why they would have to do that whereas in another laboratory where they are supported where they feel like a family where the extra time that they put in is appreciated and they're rewarded for that and i don't mean financially rewarded i just mean you know within your soul you feel and and if you have ideas you you feel like you're able to air them and uh, pursue them and it it creates empowerment it creates innovation and that's what you want within your workforce. Yes, you can put all these policies and procedures and technologies in place, but if you don't have the right people with the right mindset to use them or, or have the desire and the motivation to, to carry them out properly, all of that money that you put in with technology or all that, that change in, in process and, and procedure, if no one follows them, then that's more pivotal, more critical to, you know, not, not being able to make change. So I think my first one would be, you know, building good working relationships within departments and between them to ensure that the, the work that's being done is, is utilised and that, you know, there's getting feedback to each of the different parts of that chain so that they understand each other. The second would be around understanding what data exists within the laboratory, within the property management store, within the police, you know, computers. What information do we already have about crime guns, about gun crime, about how firearms and ammunition are illicitly used? And we need to maximize that data. We need to analyze it properly. And I think there needs to be more training and awareness and, and understanding around intelligence analysis and all of the software that might be utilized, not only expensive software, but free software, you know, and, and training provided so that those individuals, you know, whether they're law enforcement, whether they are intelligence analysts, whether they're forensic scientists, they can actually analyze and interrogate and they have time to do that to be able to exploit the knowledge that they already have about emerging threats, um, areas where, you know, they may not have had much gun crime before, but they're, they're starting to, to ramp up. Um, you know, so I think that would be my second one around more training and awareness generally, but particularly in the use of forensic intelligence uh, and how it can support, you know, both um, investigations, but also, you know, trying to prevent crime from occurring. Um, and then my third one would be around trying to dispel the myth that expensive technology is the only solution. It isn't. Absolutely, though, I 100% agree, technology helps, particularly if you have high levels of gun crime, you know, particularly if you have... Um, any any type of firearm related crime and and this means you know manufacturing of illegal firearms so whilst that might not 
be something that's um, occurring in, in the US very often because of the availability of, of factory made manufactured firearms in the UK and across uh, Europe. Um, you know, our firearm legislation is, is much more severe. And now we are experiencing, um, you know, in the UK, uh, craft produced firearms. You know, we've, we've always had um, our criminals have always liked to get around our legislation, find loopholes, use antique weapons uh, and make uh, uh, homemade ammunition so that they can discharge them and, and say that they've got a legally possessed firearm um, for their criminal activities. Um, you know, whether it's ghost guns, whether it's 3D printed guns, whether it's literally two pieces of pipe being, you know, pushed together to fire a shotgun cartridge. Um, the, the illegal manufacturing of ammunition and firearms, you just like if, if the knowledge and awareness isn't there that that is happening or that might be occurring when you have, you know, execute a warrant, when you go and do a search, if you aren't aware of, of actually what these these pieces of equipment might look like that indicate, you know, illicit manufacturing facilities, that's, you know, firearm related crime, too. And that's sometimes the starting point. You, you might go into a, a property or um, a residence and you might have overlooked that information. So, you know, being able to, to understand um, the value that a whole range of different types of firearm related crime, you know, exist and you know, making use of the technology and the free software or the available hardware that you have, just because it's old doesn't mean that it's not valuable, it's not useful, that you can't utilize that information, the images you take from the comparison microscope. There might be an academic in the university down the road who can actually write you a piece of software that enables you to do something that you don't have the financial resources to buy for you. And so, you know, it's about, you know, making those connections and being able to reach out to people who may be able to assist to, to bridge um, some of the, the barriers and, and tackle the barriers that you might be experiencing if particularly if, if, you know, the financial restrictions are such that you can't do what some other places, you know, are able to do. So this, this has been very, very... Uh insightful and uh i i find myself mesmerized by what you're what you're saying we're running up against our hour and um i i think that we'd like to have you come back and talk about some of your actual research at some point but as we as we move to close out this session um rachel you're in charge you're, you're, you're the president, you're the king, the queen for the day. What, what, what would you do if you were in charge today to improve um, the use of prime gun intelligence? Oh, you're not going to like this answer. I'd scrap <laughs> it all. I'd literally, I would literally get, you know, some of the key stakeholders together but making sure that every single professional role involved in the criminal justice system is in that workshop, a massive workshop. And we would start with a completely blank slate. And we would consider what the current issues are and what we consider the future issues to be associated with crime. And not just gun crime, because we know that that's only one part. And, and it's often associated, you know, firearms are often associated with other forms of illegal activity. So we need to consider this as a holistic perspective, you know, not just investigating one type of crime or, you know, the commodities associated with that type of crime. We need to consider the fundamental picture of, of what crime is and will be in the future and try to work together to identify how we can make the processes, the practices, the policies, and use and our resources, financial um, person power, you know, um, space, uh, facilities, everything, 
as effectively as we actually can. And because we often find when we make the change, you know, in the short term, it's really painful and it may feel like there's no, you know, improvement that's going to be made. But if it's done properly, there's always efficiencies, always effectiveness. You create resources, you you create time, you enable things to happen that you never thought possible if, you know, you stayed in the mindset that you were. And so that's what I would do. I would I would consider the entire thing as points as ground zero. You know, our society now is not what it was when a lot of our laws and our agencies and our laboratories were were created. The knowledge that we have now is so much more advanced than it was back then. And we are limiting ourselves, you know, by sometimes understandably only taking those small points. And, and making small changes. But I think we need to, to have a complete paradigm shift in our approach to the criminal justice system. But everybody had to be on board in order to make that happen. Even if the president was to in that, you know, say, this is happening, if there's not buy-in at the ground level, if they don't understand why they're doing it, again, no change is going to happen. So, so if I hear you right, <laughs> We've got to stop trying to change the flat tire on the car while we're running down the highway at 60 miles an hour. And uh, sometimes you've got to stop, take a step back, stand down, and uh, reevaluate from ground. Ground up. Ground up. Yeah. Great. I'm hey, going to turn it over to Ray. Hey, hey, Rachel, uh, you know, we, we, Pete and I like to consider the RF factor, a podcast that focuses uh, focuses on leadership. And since we've been doing this, I recognize that I constantly get it wrong as it relates to leadership. Uh, There's no one size that fits all. It comes in all shapes and sizes. And I'm of the mindset that when it comes to leadership, you know it when you see it. And, and clearly, you are a leader, and I really enjoyed listening to your, not just description, but your understanding of forensics, forensic intelligence, and more importantly, what it, what, what's it, what it is about to be a leader in this domain. So thank you for spending this past hour with us. It was uh, very informative. And um, I'm looking forward to some of the other things you're going to be doing into the future on how you, to Pete's point, on how you figure out a better way to change the tire here. Your your passion is contagious, really. Yes. Thank you. But, you know, I'm just one part. You know, I, I can't do anything without a whole team of people, you know, working with the same agenda, with the same vision. And and wanting that change for us all for the future. We before we close, we do have to ask you about that beautiful picture behind you. <laughs> uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about it because I know are uh, any of our guests that are going to catch this on YouTube will be wondering. Absolutely. So um, this the picture behind me is by an artist called Paul Kenton in the UK. Um, it was one of the first pieces of art that I bought when I bought my own house. And so um, it, it captures my imagination because it's both purposeful, but also abstract. And I'll move out the way so you can actually see it. Um, he uses a screwdriver to actually drizzle the paint over and make the detail that you can see. And um, a Mini was my first car. And uh, I had a number of them over the years. I, I am a motorsport fanatic. Um, I have a 1932 MGM type, which I and I was uh, cool. my dad at the weekend in uh, in one of his vintage cars. It's just a 1936 MG cream cracker. Do you wear one of those helmets, too? You put them on. Oh, uh, luckily I'm not uh, behind the racing. Uh, you know, <laughs> on a track. When I am on a track, though, I'm in orange. I'm oh. a marshal, so I stand on the start line or I run the assembly area. So <laughs> very wow. cool. Love it. Very yes. cool. 
Yes. Well, Rachel, time. Rachel, we can't thank you enough for coming on. And uh, to Pete's point, we're going to have you back on in the future. Fantastic. Well, thanks we, want so get, we want to get a little more deeply into some of your research. And um, but this was a good a good foundation we've established, though, for the next time. Look forward to it. Thanks, right. Bo. Thank you so much.